As we look to the scriptures, the appropriate response to Jesus' sovereign authority is to repent and to believe. Let us pray. Father, as we come to this passage in Mark, as we see the Lord Jesus teaching in the synagogue, casting out a demon, healing a sick mother-in-law, and then after this one Sabbath day, well into the night, healing and casting out demons, all pointing to the reality that the saving reign of God has come in the teaching and ministry and life of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we flee to him as a response to this, your word, as we reflect on his sovereign authority. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please open your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 21 and read through verse 34. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What a Sabbath day of ministry. The wise person reads the signs and prepares appropriately. You know, weather apps have, have made this, this old saying understood with a little bit of a different uh, twist. It's made this a bit of a high-tech thing with regard to this age-old adage. But the basic principle is true. If we look at the weather map on our app or if we look out our window to the horizon and we see storm clouds, what do we do? Well, we grab an umbrella. Of course, most of us have probably left that umbrella somewhere, so we won't have an umbrella, maybe a raincoat, and we appropriately prepare for the weather, even adjusting outdoor activities accordingly. 
It's interesting that Jesus applies this principle in Luke chapter 12. The, the people living in the Holy Land, when they saw coming, would, would be a east wind coming from the east, blowing over the Mediterranean. When they, when they saw storm clouds coming from the east, they prepared for rain because of the moisture that would have been picked up over the Mediterranean Sea. When they experienced a south wind blowing from Egypt, blowing over the desert, they appropriately prepared for no rain and really hot weather. And in fact, Jesus uses this to rebuke the people of his day. He called them hypocrites because, hey, they, they could read the signs of weather, rain, no rain, but they were spiritually blind to the clear signs that the kingdom of God had come in him, in his teaching, and in his ministry, and in his life. And we find this same principle fleshed out in a little bit of a different way in our text today. Reading the signs of the coming of the kingdom and responding appropriately. To recap Mark's gospel, it was based on Peter's sermon, as we've said earlier, and it was originally written, it's written to us today, but it was originally written to those Christians who were living in the day of Nero, undergoing his reign of terror on the church. They were living under the threat of persecution. And as such, likely, they felt like the kingdom of God had not come. Nero's terror had come. They likely were losing hope, many of them dying for their faith. They might have questioned, would the church survive this intense time of persecution? And so Mark wrote this gospel based on Peter's sermon to beleaguered believers that they might interpret the signs that indeed the saving reign of God, the kingdom of God, had come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the appropriate response was and is today what Jesus preached in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, where he began his ministry in Galilee, preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. And what was to be the response? Jesus said he called all who heard of the kingdom to respond appropriately by repenting and believing. And that is the same response that is appropriate for our day. Now, in chapter 1, verses 21 through 34, what we're looking at today, Mark focuses on Jesus' sovereign authority in teaching and preaching the good news that the kingdom of God has come, and the kingdom of God has come to save God's people. The saving reign of God had broken forth in the person and work of of Jesus. And the signs of Jesus' authority here in this passage in Mark 
His authority to teach was his authority to cast out demons and his authority to heal diseases. Mark shows then that the purpose of these what are called signifying gifts, exorcism and miraculous healings, was to support, was to validate, validate, was to authenticate, was to signal, was to announce, was to declare that indeed the kingdom had arrived in Jesus in his authoritative teaching and his authoritative ministry. And so with this overview and background and recap in mind, I wanted to look at what are really three reactions to Jesus' authority in this passage before us today. First of all, a congregation reacted to Jesus' authority to teach in astonishment. And secondly, oddly, a demon <laughs> reacted to Jesus' authority over Satan and the demonic world. And how did he react? He obeyed. And thirdly, a mother-in-law reacted to the authority of Jesus in healing disease. She got up and began to serve. These three reactions to Jesus' authority are our sermon outline today. First, Jesus thought, taught authoritatively, and the congregation reacted to this authoritative teaching in astonishment. Look at verses 21 through 22. The first Sunday I attended Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church in Knoxville, Tennessee, back in the, well, actually, it was not back in, it was in 1980 as I was beginning grad school well I will never forget the first time I heard the pastor then the senior pastor Dr. Don Hoke preach it made quite an impression on me because Dr. Hoke preached in a way that exuded that he based the authority of his sermon, not on self, not on what man said, but on the scriptures. And I will never forget just the impact that Dr. Hope appealing to a higher authority in his preaching made on me. And that's what Derek and I endeavor to do. First and foremost, We don't want to preach like scribes who appeal to men. We want to preach like Dr. Hope who appealed to God and his word. And everyone who is a faithful preacher and teacher must appeal to the higher authority. But here's what the text says. Jesus is different in his preaching and teaching. He appeals to no higher authority. <laughs> he is the authority. The text begins in verse 21 with Jesus and the four disciples, whom he had called in verses 16 through 20, entering Capernaum. And this is strong evidence, by the way, 
that when Jesus called those four disciples there at the sea of, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, that they were likely nearby Capernaum. Now, we don't know how long they had been in Capernaum, but we do know this. They traveled to Capernaum before the Sabbath began. So there's some unspecified time. They're in Capernaum. And then the Sabbath begins, and the focus of the entire passage, this one really full day of ministry in the life of Jesus, is on what happens and how the whom Jesus ministered, well, I don't know if he ministered to the demon, but he did minister to the man, demon-possessed, how they reacted to his authority. First, immediately, I don't know how many times Mark uses the word immediately in this one passage, but here's the first one. Immediately, our Lord entered the synagogue and was teaching on the Sabbath day, verse 22. And I think the use of the term immediately points in, in this situation points to the quickness that Jesus took charge of the teaching office, the preaching office in the synagogue. And this this pattern of Jesus traveling, coming to a synagogue on the Sabbath, immediately taking charge, teaching, preaching, being given the, 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 uh, by invitation to preach and to teach, that, that is a pattern that we see throughout Jesus' life. What's interesting is that in Luke chapter 4, which is the companion passage to Mark 4 here, it's a little bit different because in Luke chapter 4, Luke begins earlier in chapter 4 with Jesus being in Nazareth, going to the synagogue there, standing to read Scripture, that would be the custom, and then sitting while the congregation stood to expound upon that passage that he read. And in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 4, this synagogue in Nazareth, the very text that Jesus read was the very text that Jim read earlier from Isaiah 61 about the day of the favor of the Lord. And what is amazing about that is that as Jesus is sitting there in Nazareth before the events of Mark 4 take place, Having read Isaiah 61, he begins to preach about himself because Isaiah 61 is about Messiah coming to spread wide the favor of the Lord in freeing the captives and healing the sick and those who are in bondage to demons being being free. I have no idea... And Mark doesn't tell us the passage that was read at the synagogue worship service in Mark 4. It could have been Isaiah 61. We just don't know. Because Mark's purpose is different. Mark's purpose is not for us to to dive into Jesus' teaching, the content of his teaching. Mark's purpose is for us to focus on Jesus' authority to teach. We'll let Luke and the Nazareth Synagogue deal with the content of Jesus' sermon. Mark is interested also in the issue of authority. The term synagogue can refer to a congregation like our congregation gathered here, building like our building in which we gather to worship. The synagogue began at the time of the Babylonian exile. 
when the Jews would gather together to pray and to read from the Torah. And that tradition carried on through uh, synagogues popping up all over the place where God had sent, sent his people. In the New Testament time, the synagogue was central to the life of the Jew. And I've already told you the custom of, of a visiting teacher being given the permission to stand and, and read Scripture like Isaiah 61. And then the congregation would remain standing. You guys have it easy. The congregation would remain standing and the, the teacher would sit, the preacher would sit and teach. And we see that fleshed out in Mark's account. And as that congregation heard Jesus teach, whatever text he had read, whatever, I don't know Jesus' three-point sermon. Mark doesn't tell us. I'm sure he had one. But what comes through is Jesus' absolute authority to teach. And the congregation responded. They reacted in astonishment. And in verse 22, they say, this guy, he teaches unlike the scribes. And how do the scribes teach? Well, these scribes here in Capernaum were probably lower-ranking scribes on the, on, on the uh, scribe uh, uh, spectrum. <laughs> they, were at, they were at the bottom. And they, they weren't like those scribes in Jerusalem that were more the upper, they, they were the elite scribes. And so these lower-level scribes were, were probably reading a passage and sitting down and telling the congregation what other scribes said about it, what the tradition of the elders, which is basically what men have said about God's truth. So, in other words, the, the, the scribes' sermon and preaching and teaching was primarily what other men said about it. And the people there in Capernaum said, man, that guy Jesus, he doesn't preach like them. He preaches, we, we've never heard a guy preach like that. He preaches with authority. And they were astonished. Actually, that word astonished is best understood as they were dumbfounded. They were blown away. They were even alarmed at the authority with which Jesus demonstrated as he preached and as he taught. Derek and I may alarm you, but it probably won't be because of our authority. Dr. Lane writes this, his, that is Mark's, primary emphasis is on the authority of Jesus' teaching and the response of the people whose astonishment conveys the impression of real alarm. Jesus' word presented with a sovereign authority which permitted neither debate nor theoretical reflection confronted the congregation with the absolute claim of God upon their whole lives. Wow. That man preaches with authority like we've never heard. Jesus did not appeal to a higher authority for he was the divine authority. He is the truth, the word incarnate. He is the true prophet, even that prophet that Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 said would come after him, would come after a whole line of human prophets, the prophet 
And the Lord said to me, Moses, verse 17, they are right in what they have spoken. We'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's Jesus, the true prophet. Remember our study of Hebrews and how Hebrews begins with these words long ago. At many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Mark makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is the authority, the sovereign authority to bring the kingdom of God, the saving reign of God to bear upon the human race in his authoritative teaching and his authoritative ministry for the purpose of saving God's people. I have two points of application. The first one is simply this. To preachers like Derek and myself, to teachers and el- and our people like our elders here at Covenant, our deacons, all the those who teach Sunday school at all ages, to all of us who have been granted not the right but the privilege to preach and teach, may we ever do so by appealing to higher authority God's word. Second application for us all. Our response to the sovereign authority of Jesus is, is not to be not to be like that congregation who were dumbfounded by his authority, but rather to be fully embracing and subservient to his authority. To be committed to him, the authority. Like the original recipients of this letter, we may be tempted to think all is lost in this, this pagan culture. Our culture is ever becoming more and more hostile to the Christian faith. But our response must be to, to embrace the authority of Jesus, the authority of his word, and to view life, to view our culture, to view everything through the lens of Scripture and conclude that indeed... Though it may not look like it, and I'm sure those believers in Mark's day thought it didn't look like it either as Nero was putting half of them to death. But it may not look like it, but the reality is, the truth of Scripture is, that the saving reign of God has come, and the saving reign of God is still advancing then and today and the day after day and until the Lord Jesus comes again. And so, therefore, irrespective of how bad things look in our culture, how bad things look in our life, if we are the Lord's, and we view things through the lens of Scripture, we embrace the authority of Jesus' teaching that it's my authority, the Bible is my authority in how I live my life and how I think about life and how I view life. It's my worldview. That Bible is my worldview. If we embrace that, we will be people of hope in the most desperate of times.
And Mark wrote that those poor beleaguered brothers and sisters of ours who were being burned by Nero, that's what they faced. Would you life through the lens of Scripture, the authority of Jesus' teaching, and have hope? How much more should we? Second, Jesus' authoritative issued a command and a demon reacted to Jesus' sovereign authority over Satan and the demonic realm in obedience. Years ago, a friend of mine told me a story of a friend of his. And this friend of his was babysitting this family. And the parents had instructions. I mean, mothers, what, what kind of instructions do you leave when you're wanting the babysitter to do the right thing? What to eat, medicine to take, when to go to bed, what to wear, brush your teeth, all of those things. Well, th this family had left all these instructions to this babysitter. And so the time came for bed. And the little boy in the family, he didn't want to go to bed. Did he pitch a fit? Did he run and hide? Did he just stand there with his arms crossed, just defiant? I'm not going to bed. No, what he did was he took his hand. And he put his hand on top of that babysitter's head. And he said, demon, get out. I didn't know there were babysitter demons. Well, I wonder what he learned in Sunday school, where he we went to church. I wonder what he was taught at home. Maybe he watched a religious show on TV. <laughs> I don't know. But this I do know. There is only one with the authority to cast out demons, and it's not that little boy. And it's not you and me, Jesus. Once again, we find... Mark using the term immediately in verse 23. <laughs> and, and as Jesus is there teaching, authoritatively teaching, this demon, this unclean spirit that had possessed this man cried out. The New Testament makes a clear distinction between disease and demon possession. An evil spirit, a demon, had taken control of this man. He was not suffering from some mental illness. He was not sick. He was not exhibiting deviant behavior. He was not trying to cause trouble for Jesus. He was possessed by a demon. And I want to make three observations. First, the focus of the text is not on the poor man that was demon-possessed, but, but on the demon. And then secondly, the immediacy of, of this disturbance was, was not an accident. It's significant because here again, the authority of Jesus to teach is quickly linked with his authority to do an exorcism, to cast out a demon. And once again, it's, it's to support, to announce, to validate Jesus' authority to to teach in bringing the kingdom of God to bear. The demon exorcism was a signifying miracle of Jesus' authority. And third, this episode is part of a much greater reality, the cosmic conflict 
between the seed of the serpent, Satan, and his demonic forces, and the seed of the woman, Jesus. We see this verse given in Genesis chapter 3.15. We saw it expressed in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, as Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And you may remember when we looked at that text that the focus was this battle and being tempted by Satan was not to be just a one-and-done thing for Jesus, but was to be something that would be a battle and a temptation throughout his entire ministry. And right here at the very beginning of his ministry, we see indeed that is true as he has this conflict with Satan and his demonic forces right here in the midst of a synagogue worship service as he was teaching. Mark records this miracle at the very beginning of Jesus' meeting just to emphasize this cosmic conflict and Jesus' absolute sovereign authority over Satan and his demonic forces. Another striking component of this story is the demon's knowledge of Jesus. He cried out with a question. Look at verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So the demon knew Jesus by his common name, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was just that Nazareth, according to Luke, teaching and preaching, reading Isaiah 61. Now he's in Capernaum, teaching. Jesus went by the name Jesus of Nazareth. But also notice that this demon knew Jesus' identity, his divine identity, the Holy One of God. He knew that he was divine. Further, the demon appears to understand Jesus' mission. The demon says, have you come? And I think a better understanding of have you come is not have you come from Nazareth, but have you come from heaven? Have you come in the Philippians 2, verse 5 and following? Have you come down here to earth as Messiah to seek and save the lost and destroy us? He's asking that question. He knows Jesus' identity. He knows his divine. He knows his mission to seek and save the lost. He knows the end, Genesis 3.15, that the hill of the seed will crush the head of the serpent, a fatal blow. This demon knows more than most Christians about Jesus and his mission. And sadly, this demon is more orthodox than many professors in some of our liberal seminaries. What he's asking is, tell me, Holy One of God, has the time for Genesis 3.15 to be finalized actually come? In the ancient world, naming something represented power over it. And this demon naming Jesus was a failed attempt to somehow gain power over Jesus, but it poorly didn't work. This demon was no match for the sovereign authority of Jesus. Jesus rebuked him, ordered him to be silent. He came out of the man, verse 25. It was a violent matter because the demon obeyed Jesus' voice, but he caused the man to convulse. And one last failed attempt, the demon takes control of the man's vocal cords and cries out, shrieks actually. And then he's gone. 
Verse 27 says, Jesus' fame spread. And there the congregation reacts in amazement, wonder, and questions amongst themselves. Well, they, they were wondering, what have we just witnessed? A new teaching with authority? Is that what we just saw? That even the demons obey him? And verse 27 is so important because it emphasizes the purpose of this exorcism was in fact to validate that this was a new teaching, sovereign teaching by, with sovereign authority to teach and, and to be supported and announced and validated by the sovereign authority to cast out demons. And so what applications can we make? First of all, like these early Christians who were likely hopeless for the future, we should find great comfort and confidence in Jesus' sovereign authority over the ancient foe. Jesus demonstrated all the demonic forces will not keep him from fulfilling his mission, the very mission that they know. But they will not keep him from seeking and saving the lost people of God. I don't know about you, but that's really encouraging in this day and time. Think of those who are facing death for their faith. Would that not be encouraging? That all the forces of Satan will not keep Jesus from his mission. We should be comforted and confident in the fact that Jesus, the head of the church, has sovereign authority over Satan, and as such, no matter how bad the battle gets, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The ancient foe of Christ and his church will be destroyed. The demon believed and feared. We believe and hope. The church will be the only institution in eternity. And J.C. Raw gives a helpful insight concerning the uselessness of intellectual knowledge of religion. The demon knew about Jesus. He had intellectual assent as to Jesus' identity and mission. But such intellectual assent, such right orthodox knowledge about Jesus is not enough. It is insufficient for salvation. As Ryle states, one must know Jesus in intellect and heart, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The demon could, aff could affirm, as again, again saying, better than some Christians and better than some seminary professors who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do. He knew Jesus was the Savior, but he was not the demon Savior. In an odd way, this demon serves an evangelistic purpose, forcing us to question, wait, wait a minute, I know a lot about Jesus. I've been to Sunday school. I know the answer is always Jesus, no matter what the question is. But do I know Jesus in my heart? Is my knowledge of Jesus amounting to what this demon believed? Or is my knowledge of Jesus saving? Today, if you're questioning 
Do you know Jesus in your heart? Don't cry out in fear like that, that demon did. Cry out for mercy and healing. Knowing that Jesus has authority to redeem your life from the pit. To bring you out of darkness into light. To give you life. And to give you that hope that means no matter how bad things get, I have a future and an inheritance in Christ. And then very last, I just want to mention this as our time has faded. Jesus had authority to heal Peter's mother-in-law. Fever was a really serious thing in the ancient world. They viewed it as a disease. After the synagogue worship service and this exorcism, by the way, I hope we never have an exorcism. I'm just kidding. Um, after the service, they go a very short distance to, to Peter. and An Andrew is probably staying with Peter. It's probably Peter's house. And there his mother-in-law was. And what's, what's significant is this, that when the disciples got there, they told Jesus Peter's mother-in-law had a fever. Jesus went in, took her by the hand, raised her up. The fever left. And she immediately was revived and got up and began to serve, doing her chores, whatever that was. And the point that I want to make here is that this specific purpose, Jesus touched her so that there would be no doubt that, it, that he is the one who had sovereign authority over that disease, over that fever. And that fever left her. I just want to make one application here, again, with our, uh, Ryle's help. The disciples told him about her. What do you think were the list of needs, the original hearers of Mark's gospel? What do you think that, that list was? It was a long list, many needs. How many needs do, do, do we have? What, what is the remedy to all of our needs, our sickness, our struggles, our sin, and what this text would tell us to do is that when we have a need, tell it to Jesus. Take it to him. He has a sovereign authority to heal. If not to physically heal, but to physically deal with that, to bring about a spiritual good from it, to strengthen that we might remain faithful, to revive, to forgive, to pour out his grace, to bring about his good purposes. Like Isaiah 61, that's, that's our future. Isaiah 61 was being fleshed out even in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34, what we've read today. The effects of the fall were being pushed back by Jesus. Lives were being changed. People no longer in bondage to demons, no longer overcome with sickness. And the appropriate response... to the sovereign authority of Jesus whose teaching and ministry brought the saving reign of God to bear is for us to repent and to ever believe in him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are sovereign. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are sovereign, that in you the saving reign of God has come.
and by your grace we have been gathered in to that great, great kingdom. May we ever live fully committed to your word. May we ever live resting and trusting in you, repenting and believing, telling you of our need, trusting you to work for our good and for your glory. Father, give us hope. Enable us to see all of life through the sovereign authority of Jesus and of Jesus' word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.